0: John Ziegler here, excited to announce that we have our first sponsor of the Individual One Podcast. Now, as you'd probably expect, I do not do endorsements unless I actually use the product. And I just started using this one. It's Imbue CBD. If you're a golf fan like I am, and you've probably read about how CBD is all the rage with all sorts of respected people raving about the various positive physical aspects of CBD, especially among people like me who are, let's face it, starting to feel the impact of aging. Recently, I started trying multiple products from Imbue CBD. And I can already tell that, among other things, I am for sure sleeping more soundly. And my wife says she loves the Imbue CBD facial cream. Although, to be honest, she doesn't need it. In case you haven't heard, CBD is the powerful extract from the hemp version of cannabis. And while it may offer many of the health benefits of marijuana, there's no high, it's legal, and doesn't require a prescription. The source I trust for CBD is Imbue CBD. This is a top-of-the-line product and classy in every way. Consequently, Imbue CBD is not inexpensive, but I got you a discount to explore all the many ways CBD might be able to help you. Go to imbuecbd.com and get 25% off when you enter John Z. Again, enter John Z for 25% off at imbuecbd.com. That's imbuecbd.com. Promo code John Z. This is episode number 108 of the Individual One podcast. For the record, Individual Number One is President Donald J. Trump. And I am your host, John Ziegler. We are broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, and distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the critically acclaimed program which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a truly conservative perspective. Not too many left of us. Because unfortunately, no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him. And unlike the corporate media, we here at the Individual One Podcast have most definitely not been compromised or co-opted. Welcome to the program. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. Follow us on Twitter, at Individual One Pod. That's at Individual, the number one pod. The theme of this week's episode will be how America has been reminded over the last several days about how horrible both of our presidential candidates really are. Correct. Uh, And it is pathetic. I mean, we, we knew it would be bad, but the last several days have really crystallized just how horrendous this choice is. In 2016, I thought we would never have a worse choice than Hillary Clinton and the version of Donald Trump that existed in 2016. Uh, I would suggest that we now know that we can do much worse. Uh, We can do actually much worse than what we did in 2016. We're better than that. Uh, No, apparently we are not. Uh, And that will be in evidence during today's uh, podcast. Let's start uh, first with the uh, Trump, since this obviously is the individual one podcast, you know, amidst the the virus crisis, which regardless of how you view the seriousness of it. And I have been on uh, a end of the spectrum on that question that is very different than the conventional wisdom, which I'll continue to explain during this episode. Uh, there is no doubt whatsoever that this is by far the largest crisis in the modern history of America. Uh, whether it needed to be or not, uh, historians will probably be debating that for a very, very long time, but it absolutely is. And for the last several days, in the midst of this crisis, in midst of some of the, the biggest questions facing the future of this country and the world, Donald Trump, our president, has mostly been focused on let's let's review. He's been mostly focused on whether MSNBC host Joe Scarborough is a murderer. Correct. Whether or not mail-in balloting is a conspiracy to rig the election against him. Correct. Uh, Whether Twitter is so unfair to him that it should be shut down by the federal government. Correct. And what an unbelievable scandal the so-called Obamagate story really is. Correct. Those are are the issues that the president has been laser-focused on. Uh, Trying to bring attention to because those are the most important things. Oh, by the way, while getting a couple rounds of golf in during the Memorial Day weekend, not that I have anything against golf, but from a symbolism standpoint, probably not the best maneuver on on his part. And uh, and it gave the liberals all sorts of uh, fodder for attacking him. Uh, And it's starting, by the way, all of this we're going to talk about later on in the episode. It's starting to impact his approval ratings and his chances of reelection Uh, without a doubt. But I want to talk specifically about this uh, the story that has really dominated at least social media over the last 24 hours, and that is this Twitter fact check absurdity. There's always been this struggle at Twitter uh, to determine how to handle Donald Trump, whether or not he should be held to the same standard as other users are? Should he be held to a different standard? Should he be held to no standard? Because after all, he's the president of the United States. Well, yesterday they finally did something which I thought was frankly stupid. And I am, I'm, unfortunately, I am a hostage of Twitter. I hate Twitter with a, a white hot passion. Uh, yet I spend most of my day on Twitter because uh, there's, it's, there, I really have no other choice based upon what it is that I do. And uh, and the only other ways to get the, the word out, for, at least for me, on social media platforms don't really work. I happen to be verified on Twitter and have over 40,000 followers, which is not very much, but they're very loyal and enthusiastic followers. And it's a good way to at least get a some sort of a gauge on what's going on in the news and some semblance of public opinion. But I, I hate so many aspects of it, and I really hate— Twitter as a corporate entity. And I've dealt with Twitter as a corporate entity. They I I would never in a million years buy Twitter stock. I think they are a horrendously run company. Uh, I think that they are vastly overvalued. Uh, Once the Trump presidency ends, I I think there's a very good chance that Twitter is going to have a complete collapse Uh, because essentially Trump is Twitter in a large degree, uh, at least from a political standpoint. I mean, he, he was made by Twitter and, and vice versa. Uh, without uh, Trump, I'm not sure that Twitter would even be that big of a deal in this day and age. But we are where we are. And Twitter is a very, very, in many ways, liberal, fascist, pro-censorship con- uh, company. And they finally did something to crack down yesterday on Donald Trump by essentially fact-checking a tweet, a couple of tweets that he made about this issue of mail-in balloting. For the November election. Now, <laughs> this was so odd in so many ways because of all of the tweets that have been a- inaccurate and blatant lies that Donald Trump has made during his presidency. I mean, we're talking about at least hundreds, if not thousands of tweets that if you're going to fact check them, deserved to have some accountability placed on them. Uh, this is the one that they choose to tr- finally draw the line on. Right. I mean, and this is this is a problem. You always have whenever you draw a line. I have two young children. I mean, try, f- trying to figure out where you draw the line is very, very difficult. And Dealing with Trump is a lot like dealing with a young child. And, and so why are you drawing the line here? I guess there's some semblance of rationality to the idea, well, this was an inaccurate statement about an election issue and that somehow this put it into a different category. But I'm not even 100% sure the opinion that he gave would have qualified as inaccurate information. I mean, I don't agree necessarily with what he said, but I do believe he had the right to say it. Uh, he he is the president of the United States, and he has an opinion that what's happening with the mail-in balloting in a lot of these states is going to be a problem with regard to corruption, and it will uh, invite uh, fraud. Now, there's not a lot of evidence that that's actually it happened in the past or would happen in the future, but I get what he's talking about. It absolutely, in theory, does open up the, the system for more fraud. Now, let's be clear. The real problem is, and this is why it's happening in Democratic states, is that Democrats believe that the easier it is for people to vote, the more Democrats will vote. Right. I mean, that's always been the premise, although, you know, I used to buy into that premise, but that was before the Republican Party was dominated by a different demographic. I love the poorly educated. And and so I'm not 100 percent sure that that's as accurate as it once was. But but look, there's no question that by and large, historically, when more people vote, it tends to be good. Uh, for Democrats and in modern times the last several election cycles until 2018 actually 2018 is the exception that proves the rule the midterm elections which have fewer people voting have been much better for Republicans and the the, the general elections where you have more people voting tend to be better for Democrats and so that's really what's driving the bus here But as far as what Twitter did, I thought it was a horrendous precedent. I mean, so now you're gonna create a situation where if you don't fact check uh, a, a president's tweet, you're essentially saying that it's true, right? I mean, you've now put yourself in an impossible situation. So either you're gonna end up fact checking every single tweet by the president of the United States or the ones that you don't, you're inherently saying, yep, that one's okay, that one's true. It just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. And, uh, and, and boy, this situation. Boy, that escalated quickly. We went from uh, yesterday the fact check of Trump to today uh, the, the president using Twitter, rather ironically, to say that he is going to either stringently regulate or close them down close them down are you not entertained right so the president of the united states think about how absurd this is the president of the united states goes in less i think it was less than 24 hours certainly within one day he goes from whining about this is literal whining about having his free speech restricted because Twitter slapped a a fact check onto a couple of his tweets, which is not even accurate. That's not restricting your free speech. I've written a book about free speech. And free speech is different than the First Amendment, but, you know, there is a concept of free speech. And so I'm not even talking about, in this case, the issue of government regulating speech, would be, which would be, in theory, a violation of the First Amendment. But, you know, Trump got to say what he, he said, and Twitter slapped a, a fact check uh, uh, on it. So, um, you know, that was unprecedented. But in theory, that was their right as a a corporation. This was not a restriction of his free speech. They didn't take the tweet down. They didn't, uh, you know, suspend his account, which they could have in theory and have done in in egregious fashions uh, to lesser known people on many, many occasions. And so uh, so Trump was wrong yesterday when he claimed that his free speech was being infringed upon. But then today he goes and threatens to actually create a real free speech first amendment violation correct i mean if that because that's what literally the first amendment is about the government not infringing upon people's free speech and if if he were to in in many cases if he were to stringently regulate regulate and clearly if he were to close them down and essentially censor, uh, censor the entire uh, entity of Twitter, as well as all the Twitter users, then, you know, in theory, that would obviously be a blatant violation of the First Amendment. So that, when you look up hypocrisy in the dictionary, it would be difficult to come up with a better example than that one. He's making it up as he goes a and not. That's pretty much what's happening here. And, and this is in the midst of a major crisis. Uh, who we are as a country is literally being shaped on a day-to-day basis. Whether or not we're even going to still exist as anything resembling the United States of America is being decided on a almost hourly-by-hourly hourly basis on the decisions that are being made. And this is what the president is concerned about. This is what he's outraged about. And that and the, the insane Joe Scarborough obsession and the, the, the Barack Obama uh, alleged scandal uh, obsession uh, it's it isn't it's ups, it's absolutely insane making it's it's unbelievable it's, it's just flat out ridiculous but this is where we are and it's a you know it's a good reminder because i have i'm sure listeners to this podcast have been wondering well why has john been uh, you know a little softer on trump lately it's because i've been so terrified by the democratic reaction uh, to the virus and to the shutdown And as much as I despise Trump, I've been like, okay, whoa, 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 wait a minute, hold on a second. Which is worse here? And I don't know which is worse, but it's been a heck of a reminder. About why Trump is as horrible as he is, and how horrendous a second term would be with no guardrails, no accountability, no uh, election, no nothing to stop him. Impeachment already having been used, it, it would just be a, a, a nightmare beyond a nightmare. Uh, but you know what? As bad as that would be, there are still bigger issues facing us because of this entire uh, virus crisis. But with regard to Trump, never, ever forget, and I never have forgotten, that Trump is an undisciplined child. That's what he is at his essence. He is a child, and that's why he never learns. That's why he cannot be held in check for uh, longer than a, a short period of time. And you know, if he was remotely smart, if he was remotely disciplined, if he remotely knew what he was doing... All he should be talking about right now is reopening this country as safely as possible and supporting those governors who are reopening and so far have had some success in doing so. That's what he should be focused on. He should be creating a narrative, if he really wants to get reelected, he should be creating a narrative that is conducive to that. This kind of whining is not. It's not at all. In fact, I believe his only legitimate path to re-election at this point is essentially betting against the virus. He must bet against the virus from this point forward. Uh, He must take advantage of the fact that the Democrats and Joe Biden are now completely, totally emotionally and politically invested in the virus being the worst thing that has ever happened and that we must do everything we possibly can to save all lives, including shut down our economy and destroy our way of life. He must bet that that is an overplay, which I've said many, many times, Democrats will always, always, always overplay their hand. Trump must bet that that is an overplay and that by November they're going to look like morons, that they're going to look like uh, fascists, they're going to look like wimps. That is his only play. Now, if the virus is not under control... Uh, during that period of time or or come uh, late October, early November, that bet will fail regardless. But that to me is if if he really wants to be reelected, that's his play. That's his path. And I just want to make sure because I've I've said it many times in the past, but I want to reemphasize it because sometimes it gets lost in, in me trying to be as objective as I possibly can about where we are on this whole virus situation. There is absolutely no doubt in my mind that this is Trump's fault where we are today. Whether or not it's because of how he handled the virus and there's absolutely things that he should have done that he didn't. If we had more testing at the beginning of this, we would have had a better idea what we were dealing with. Maybe there wouldn't have been as much panic. Those of us who were saying don't panic would have had more data to back us up. Uh, the experts wouldn't have been uh, so terrified of this this boogie monster of, uh, on a runaway. Uh, unmitigated, exponential growth and death that we saw in New York. Everyone wouldn't have thought necessarily that every, that every part of the country was going to be like the greater New York City area. A lot of that is Trump's fault, or at least his administration's fault. Uh, but you know what? I, I'm also of the belief that government in general may not have that much control over this thing. It, it has been distressing to me to see so many con- so-called conservatives, especially now never-Trump conservatives, who really are having their, their view of all this impacted by their hatred of Trump and, in some cases, their uh, career self-interest in Trump going down and therefore, and, and never saying anything remotely uh, that could be perceived as being pro-Trump. Uh, But it has been very distressing to me to see that conservatives somehow believe that government is the be all end all, that government has control over this, that government should have control over this. They should have the control over our lives and that somehow government is uh, what is dictating how uh, much impact the virus has in any given state or in any given country or in any given region of the world. I am unconvinced of that, but I am convinced that because of the nature of who Trump is and the political ramifications of that, that's why we are in this situation right now. That's why we are in a circumstance where it's effectively a red state, blue state civil war. And in where in the blue states, uh, those of us like myself living in California, a blue state, have no ability to fight back against the tyranny. Because Trump is so unpopular in those states because of the way he chose to run his presidency and to basically thumb his nose in any state he didn't think he could win re-election in. And therefore, his approval ratings are so in the toilet that he has no influence here. None. In fact, there's this bizarre situation where, like in California, our governor, Gavin Newsom, gets points for the more anti-Trump he can possibly be. And in fact, probably gets points when Trump supporters are protesting against him. And it's all because of the way Trump chose to run his presidency. He chose to run his presidency based upon doing nothing more than pleasing his cult. I love the poorly educated. And pleasing the cult got him through impeachment and other scandals and and served him well, But when this crisis happened, and I've always said the biggest concern about a Trump presidency is what happens in a crisis? He is completely and totally unqualified for this position, especially in a crisis. But when this crisis hit, those decisions and those strategies that he had used to survive those problems that were almost entirely of his own making came back to haunt all of us all of us because he could not lead in a crisis because to lead in a crisis, you must lead the majority. You cannot lead in a crisis, especially like this one, when you only have influence over a minority of your citizens. And that is increasingly clear that that is what has happened with Donald Trump. So I want to make it very obvious that I blame Donald Trump for where we are, but I'm also someone who believes you got to make decisions on where you're going next based upon where you are, not where you should be or where you were. And that's why I've been so conflicted about what the hell are we going to do going forward here? Because as horrendous as Trump is, the other side has been in many ways even worse and more dangerous as insane as that is to even think about. And it's mainly because they have become completely and totally invested in the government running of people's lives, even when it's not justified, and even when there's no evidence that it's doing all that much good. Now, as far as the virus itself, here's a quick update. Uh, Two weeks ago, Hopefully you remember this. If you listen to this podcast, if you didn't go check out episode 106, I think I went into great detail on this. I told you that these most recent projections, specifically the ones that got a lot of play, that June 1st, June 1st here in the United States, we were going to see a massive resurgence of death in the United States. An all-time high of 3,000 deaths a day coming in June on June 1st. This was just a couple weeks ago. This was the projection. And I told you that that projection in particular and projections like that in general were off. And I thought they might be way off because they were based upon an antiquated view of what it meant to be a new confirmed case of coronavirus. That because of massively increased testing, I truly believe that we were now capturing a very fundamentally different kind of coronavirus case than we were two months ago. And that therefore those calculations, those extrapolations were going to be off and they might be way off. Well, so far I have been a hundred percent vindicated in that view. Deaths in the United States over the last three days. Now, granted, Two of those days were over a Memorial Day holiday, and so, therefore, they could be skewed a bit. But over the last three days before before the day in which we're doing this podcast, which is on Wednesday morning, California time in the United States, those last three days, the United States has averaged just over 600 deaths, just over 600 deaths for three days. Now, today, it's probably going to be much more than that, probably back over 1,000 deaths. Uh, But still, way below the projections that we're heading towards an all-time high on June 1st, which is just a few days away, uh, of 3,000 or more deaths. Uh, And 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 I I watch these projections all the time. I watch the data incredibly far more closely than I probably ever should. It gives me a headache. Uh, But I mean, it is unbelievable how these projections are so incredibly negative towards any sort of reopening. I mean, they all say any sort of reopening or relaxing of social distancing and hospitalizations are gonna explode and deaths are gonna explode and new cases are gonna explode. And it, you know it, it's just gonna be a complete disaster. Well, so far, underlined so far, we have not seen that. I will be the first to agree, it's too early to tell for sure because there is a significant lag in the data. But the key states here in America are Texas, Florida and Georgia. Those are really the key states. Those are the states you need to watch. They're all red states, Republican governors. Georgia opened up earlier than anyone else did Uh, so far. uh, You know, while they have not eradicated the virus by any stretch of imagination, they have remained static to where they were before the reopening began. And they have remained both in new cases and in deaths at very low levels very low levels. Some some days in those states, it's not uncommon for the the chances of dying on any given one day to be less, to be less than one in a million. Sometimes it's one in two million, depending on the day, if it's a particularly good day. I mean, it's just unbelievable. I mean, you you have, you know, better chance certainly of dying in a car accident uh, in in some of these days than you do uh, of dying of coronavirus, uh, in some of these states, on on good days. Now, on other, on bad days, it's it's not that, and uh, anywhere close to that. But the reality is, it's nowhere near the level of what it would need to be to justify a continual shutdown of entire of the entire uh, life and their system of 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 the way it, our society is supposed to work, our economy, everything else. I mean, that is that is maybe the number one part of all this that's been lost, is our perspective. Our perspective is completely lost. And that's maybe my number one argument. There's so many things about this where I am on the other side of the Convention of Wisdom and the popular people, and the cool people, the smart people. Uh, but number one is, how about some damn perspective? I mean, there's been so much attention about the 100,000 deaths now in America. And that's a big number. It's bigger than I thought it was ever going to be. It's bigger than Dr. Fauci thought it was going to be not that long ago. Uh, I question uh, whether or not that hundred thousand number is as valid as other people believe it to be, because now I think we're we're starting to count almost anybody who dies who who has coronavirus as having been a coronavirus death. In fact, in many places, that's exactly what it is, even in some absurd circumstances. But I'm willing to accept that somewhere around 100,000 people have died in this country of the coronavirus or, or with the coronavirus. That is a terrible number. But even that number is completely out of perspective, I mean, there's so many elements of that number that people have lost their minds over. There are still people that are comparing that to war dead. I mean, we just had Memorial Day weekend. We just had the Memorial Day weekend where uh, the New York Times published on its front page the names, now not all because they couldn't fit them, but uh, of a portion of those who died of the coronavirus as if it's war dead on Memorial Day weekend. You cannot be serious. Uh, There are so many differences. I mean, I I used to think that... Wait a minute, hold on. This is an argument not even worth engaging in because people can't possibly be this stupid, right? They can't possibly be this stupid, can they? I love the poorly educated. But I guess they are. Because even, you know, the New York Times, they're invested in this narrative. And so now this idea That somehow a hundred thousand coronavirus deaths is even in the same stratosphere as like a hundred thousand war deaths. I mean, we lost uh, eight thousand people, for instance, in Vietnam. A lot of people have used that as the example. Well, uh, okay. First of all, there's the fundamental difference between getting killed. Uh, by an enemy while fighting for a cause. Now you can argue whether or not the cause is worth dying for, but there was an actual cause. I mean, that, I mean, that's not the way the virus is working. This is not, (laughs) do I even need to explain this? I mean, is is this, is this a tough concept for people? But even if you take it out of the theoretical difference between a death in war and a death of natural causes, can we at least talk about the age issue here I know this is this is verboten. I know we're not allowed to talk about this Bless fever! but um, the reality is and we can't find the actual stat it drives me absolutely crazy I've I've asked dozens of times on social media and I cannot find a reliable way of figuring out a very basic answer to a very basic question which is what's the average age of Americans who die with or of the virus <laughs> He said it again. Uh, that that is a really basic question. And I find it fascinating and instructive that we cannot get an answer to that. And and folks, trust me, we cannot get an answer to that. The data is not available to get an answer to that question. You would think that that would be one of the most important questions we would ask in all this. So, okay, we have 100,000 deaths. That's terrible. Wow. Um, okay, tragic. Um, so can you tell me how old how old the people were who who died? Um no, we we can't tell you that. Uh, we can only tell you that in in some uh states and in some countries. Uh like for instance Massachusetts Massachusetts has pretty good data and they're very transparent for whatever reason I don't know why. Uh, They're a Democratic state with a supposed Republican uh, governor. My father lives there. They're very restrictive, uh, uh, understandably so, because they've had more virus cases than most places have, especially in the Boston area. But the average age, according to the state of Massachusetts, of those who have died is 82 years old. 82 years old. 82 years old. 82 years old. In a country where the uh, life expectancy is, depending on whether you're a man or a woman, somewhere around 74, or 75 years old. Maybe a little bit more if you're lucky, depending on your demographics. Okay. Now, everyone always immediately says, whoa, John, whew, oh, 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 you're, you're, are you saying that it doesn't matter when old people die? No, no. I'm not saying that. Uh, no, it obviously matters. My, my father, I just referenced, is about to turn 80. So he's he's right in this demographic in a place that's been hit pretty hard. Uh, I'm concerned about him. He's probably less concerned about himself than, than I am concerned about him. Uh, but uh, the reality is uh, that you cannot equate. You cannot logically equate unless you have a massive agenda uh, and you, or lack of rationality or both. You cannot equate. 82 year old people. And by the way, average means, of course, that, you know, depending on your, your and this says on the website average, although I've also seen median. But at the very least, that means about half of the people who die are older than 82. Older than 82. So you're all the average is well past life expectancy. I got a news flash for you people. We're all going to die. I know this is difficult information for some people. I I, I thought we all knew this, but we are all going to die. But you cannot equate when someone dies well after life expectancy. And oh, by the way, in Massachusetts, the other amazing fact, not only is the average age 82, but the percentage of those who have underlying conditions, in other words, major medical issues unrelated to the coronavirus, 98% ninety eight percent. It's just flat out ridiculous. Night. So. So in Massachusetts, and there's no reason to think Massachusetts is all that different. It's just that they provide the statistics in Massachusetts. The average age is 82 and essentially 100 percent of those who die have underlying conditions. Um, OK, so you're going to equate that with the average age of Vietnam deaths, which is twenty three. 23 and inherently healthy because they're they're on a battlefield so so a 23 year old healthy person so so you're trying to tell me that a hundred thousand deaths of people in their 80s with underlying conditions is somehow a a greater loss to society than fifty-eight thousand people who died in war at the average age of 23 i mean come on really you cannot be serious but this is the way they're now portraying this, and I guess it all goes to how you perceive the virus, and it also goes to how you perceive death. But um, you know, and I know the Trump haters really, they, the Trump haters really, really want to believe that these are a hundred thousand deaths that would never have happened if Donald Trump hadn't been president. They they really truly believe that. They truly believe that. Now if now if we were the only country that was being impacted the only western country if this if this hap- it originated in china and we were the only major western country that had been this impacted by this i would go okay that that makes sense clearly we did something so horrendously wrong uh, that Trump uh, is responsible for all of this, that these are extra deaths that uh, should be compartmentalized as totally separate from the rest of the world. This is something that never would have happened if Donald Trump was president. I've already acknowledged that politically we'd be in a very, very, very different situation if he wasn't president or if he had run his presidency properly. But uh, that's just not the reality. The reality is Essentially, the whole world has been impacted by this. Some places far more than others. And by the way, it's not just, you know, states in America that I look at very carefully. I look at Germany very carefully. Uh, Germany, thankfully, is heading for their 18th consecutive day, 18th consecutive day of less than a thousand new cases. A country of 83 million people this was a country that two weeks ago, even the Trudge Report was like, oh, no, here we go. Germany's going to have to reclose down because uh, they're spiking in cases. They had one bad data day, and they have had 18 consecutive days of less than 1,000 cases, 83 million people. Now, they have done a very good job of testing. They have done uh, you know, some rather draconian measures, and they are not back to normal life as of yet. Uh, they're open, but they're nowhere near normal. Or whether we're ever going to get back to normal, who the hell knows? But but I just want to make it clear, they're they're not uh, you know living life as if uh, this had never happened. But the reality is, the virus is almost non-existent after 18 days. And and this is a country that started reopening at the beginning of May. That's a good sign. That's a sign that this virus. Uh, is, is maybe not nearly as dangerous as we have been led to believe. And there's a lot of other factual data that is backing that idea up. I mean, we have learned recently that the death rate, according to the CDC, is far lower, far lower than what we were told. I mean, if we had been told at the beginning of this that the death rate was going to be three or four times, and you can argue over wh- how many more times it's it's more deadly than the average flu but it's, it is somewhere in the ballpark, based upon the most current statistics. And we don't know for sure because we don't know exactly how many people have this. But the CDC's most recent estimates basically put this at, at most, four times more deadly than the flu. All right, so as I've been saying, not the flu, but it's in the realm of the flu. It's the only thing we have to compare it to. And obviously our reaction has been... <laughs> a billion times more dramatic than it ha- than it is for the flu. But if we had been told that that was going to be the death rate, that this, you know because they told us at the beginning the death rate might be three, four percent. Now it's way less than one percent. If we had been told that that's the death rate and that the average age is going to be somewhere in the ballpark of 80, would anybody have gone along with this idea of destroying our way of life, destroying our economy, creating massive amounts of collateral medical damage? massive amounts of collateral medical damage. By the way, there's a story out uh, was on the Drudge Report uh, today where uh, Americans on average, and I don't know how accurate it is, but it's a study that that came to this conclusion. On average, Americans have gained five pounds during this shutdown. I probably gained more than that. So I believe that the five pound number is probably accurate. If that's true, and people are so bad at numbers, if you take a hundred percent a hundred percent of your population, and you add five pounds on a country that was already obese to begin with, okay, a hundred percent of your adult population, you're going to impact with injecting them with five pounds of fat. Do you understand the long-term medical implications of that? By the way, that five pounds ain't going away anytime soon. That is massive. That is going to cause enormous numbers of deaths and hospitalizations over the long haul. Enormous. And that's just one aspect of the collateral medical damage of this whole thing. But anyway, Germany has uh, gotten this thing remarkably under control. New Zealand and Australia continue to just be amazing success stories. I know they have been very strict in their crackdowns. But the, the virus is essentially non-existent there. They've had almost no impact with regard to death in New Zealand on Australia. And I thought, well, maybe this is a Southern Hemisphere thing. You know, they're coming out of summer uh, into winter. You know, maybe it'll be delayed there or, or maybe somehow the, this saves them. But then you got Brazil also in the Southern Hemisphere. It's all the, the other side of the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, that's really the, one of the hottest spots going at this moment. Uh, That Brazil is in bad shape, Uh, and then otherwise, otherwise in in Europe, you still have the United Kingdom and Spain that are struggling mightily with this. So it's you know it's different all over the world, but it's it's clearly influenced the entire world. And I'm becoming more and more convinced that a couple things: one, that government has very little impact over this. We might have the impact to to delay, uh, you know, deaths or or virus cases. But I've never had trust in government, and I don't put a lot of blame in government over something that I don't think they have responsibility for. I think that most of this is dictated by circumstances, some of it's luck, a lot of it's geography, some of it's demographics. But it has very little to do, based upon my view of the data, uh, with what your strategy here is. And and that to me is the most frustrating element. If I thought we were actually saving hundreds of thousands of deaths, uh, I would be like, okay, you know what? This sucks. We got to do it. It's worth it. it. It's saving lives. Even I don't care. Even if they're in their 80s, you know, even though they only have another couple years to live. Okay, I get it. I, I just don't even believe that. I, I believe that the the current data indicates that we dramatically overreacted to this. The death rate is way lower than we thought. The age is much higher than we ever thought. Uh, It's all horrible. But people have lost their perspective, and they've lost their perspective largely, and this (laughs) is— It's not a coincidence. That, I mean, I would say, and I, inter- I engage with way more people on social media than I should. It's not good for my health. It, it, I probably end up having a stroke one day because of it. It might even result in my death. I don't know if that'll count as a coronavirus death or not, but, uh, it, but it's, in, it's an incredible pain in the ass. But I do it. I don't know why I do it. I spend a lot of time interacting with people. I got to tell you, there is a 95% correlation between how people feel about Trump and how they feel about the virus reaction. I mean, that, that's an underestimation. I mean, that's, that's a conservative estimation. That It's at least 95% of people in, on social media and also when I interact with them uh, in person. Of course, you've got to keep your social distance. Uh, but when I interact with people occasionally uh, in person, it's, it's almost exactly the same. That how people view Trump whether even they're they're conservative or liberal, is really what impacts their view of the virus and the response to the virus. And I don't think that's at all coincidental. Uh, And and I think that Trump has to, uh, if he's going to be reelected, he has to deal with that. He has to somehow change that. He has to somehow use that to his advantage. And this whole reopening thing, I've talked about this previously, and this is going to be a continuing theme. Probably uh, for, you know, forever, as long as we're still dealing with this thing, that this whole concept of the new normal, the new normal, and what that actually means, this to me is actually more concerning than the shutdown itself was, because now this becomes perhaps codified into life forever, who knows how long, because it's much more difficult. It's much more difficult, and I use the example of the of the shoe bomber terrorist as the perfect example. It's a failed terrorist attack that still to this day has everyone, at least went back when we still used airplanes, to have to take off their shoes before they go on an airplane. No one fights back against that nuisance. Well, the nuisances that are going to be involved here are going to be even greater than taking off your shoes before going on an airplane. So maybe some of them won't be permanent, but... A lot of them are, especially when the government has an incentive, one, to admit that they weren't wrong. That's a huge part of this. No no one in the government wants to admit that they were duped or that they duped you or they overreacted or they crapped their pants and panicked. No one wants to do that. So now we have to keep the vestiges of the shutdown in place just so we can pretend that that's why. That's why the numbers aren't really exploding. It's because now everyone's forced to wear a mask when they go into a restaurant or a store. That's why the numbers aren't exploding. See, we're still, we're still in charge here in the government. We're still the reason why you didn't die no no you're just uh, continuing this because you you had the ability to to screw with our lives and you don't want to give that up and you don't and and you know that if you let us go back to life as total normal immediately and nothing bad happens you're going to look like an asshole correct i mean that's what's that's really i think driving a lot of the fear on the part of the government and especially here in california Because I truly believe if we went back to normal in California, other than maybe Los Angeles, I mean, our whole state, state of 40 million people is being held hostage because of Los Angeles. And even Los Angeles isn't all that bad, certainly not in comparison to New York City. But outside of Los Angeles and most of California, the virus doesn't even exist. Almost nobody's dying of the virus, except for extremely old people in nursing homes. And so uh, I truly believe if we went back to total normal life, Nothing would happen, and that's the worst possible scenario for the the purveyors of the shutdown, for the government entities, to the fascists who uh, you know got their taste of of the blood of uh, freedom and liberty, and now they can't get enough. They're addicted to it, and 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 that may never stop because that's the nature of government. So uh, that that is to me one of the elements of this that is most scary. Is this new normal going to be? really the way we live our life. And it's going to have a massive impact on the presidential election. And that gets me to Joe Biden. Now, to review, I've been the, one of those guys saying for years now, if you, if you want to beat Trump, Joe Biden's your guy. And I get why people are like, well, wait a minute, John, uh, aren't you being uh, hypocritical or contradictory now because now you're, you're not so sold on Biden? Well, uh, no, because a couple of things obviously have dramatically changed. The biggest difference is the shutdown changed everything about life and where we're headed. That's number one. But more importantly, there are signs that Joe Biden is not up to to the challenge here. Uh, He is not uh, you know, I I was not expecting and I've used this uh, metaphor before during the uh, primaries when I thought, oh, my gosh, Biden doesn't have it. He's not going to win. Amy Klobuchar is the only person they got left that can actually beat Trump, who's not insane and Democrats ought to uh, shift from Biden to Klobuchar, even though I knew that was never going to happen for a variety of reasons. But I use the analogy of a baseball pitcher. I was never expecting Joe Biden to be able to throw in the 90s. Uh, But I also wasn't expecting for him to be throwing, uh, you know, uh, 72 miles an hour uh, with no spin on the ball. Uh, I mean, this was he was just throwing gopher balls. And he got saved because of James Clyburn's endorsement in South Carolina. The black vote jumped on. Uh, He won the nomination. It was the most remarkable turnaround in the history of modern politics, especially since he really didn't do anything. It's not like he had a fantastic debate performance. He just got the black vote behind him. Everyone else folded. Bernie Sanders uh, got in big trouble. Then the pandemic hit. They canceled the rest of the primary for all intents and purposes. And now Joe Biden's the candidate. By the way, Joe Biden's going to be the candidate unless he dies of coronavirus. Uh, There are a lot of people still out there that are not not accepting that. But Joe Biden's going to be the candidate. And there were a couple things that happened this week uh, that are of note with regard to Joe Biden. Number one, as I predicted, it's already starting to happen. I told you the mask issue was going to be a problem for Joe Biden. I told you this. It's going to be a continuing issue. Now, right now, it might be playing in his favor. But Joe Biden finally came out of hiding. And of course, he was wearing a mask. He was wearing a black mask that looked pretty ridiculous. And of course, to the surprise of no one, Donald Trump mocked him for it. Correct. And uh, and of course, the left is all thinking, oh, boy, Trump is Trump is so wrong here. He's wrong on the issue. And Americans are in favor of the mask. And this is going to play to Biden's favor. And there's no fear of Biden look like looking like an idiot uh, wearing a mask uh, out in public because he's just showing that he gets it and that he cares about people and that he understands science. And uh, this is going to play to his advantage. You know what? Maybe it will right now. Maybe it will right now. But I am very skeptical, very skeptical that if the virus uh, is under control in any shape or form, way, shape or form over the next several months heading into the election, uh, uh, that Biden is not going to be dramatically handicapped by the mask because he's not going to be able to take it off because he's now invested in the mask. I mean, he's got his avatar on Twitter, him wearing a mask. I mean, so so it's now part of his persona. The left needs their their flag bearer, their leader to lead them on the mask. The mask is now the symbol of virtue. That's what it is. It is the ultimate signal of virtue. It is your symbol of superiority over all the other people you come in contact with because I'm wearing a mask. I care. I am not selfish. I understand science. Get away from me you, you filthy uh, Trump supporter who is not wearing a mask. That's their view of it. And they'll point you to polls that say, well, most people are in favor of using a mask. And most people think that Trump should be wearing a mask. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Guess what? Um, When people talk to a pollster, they're telling a pollster on that kind of situation what the pollster wants to hear. They're going to give them the politically correct answer. And also, by the way, that's not the answer that matters. That's not the question that matters. The question is, When you see one presidential candidate walking around with a mask all day and the other not, and uh, you're hearing on the news that, uh, you know, 200 people are dying a day out of a country of 327 million people. Which one's going to look more presidential? Which one's going to give the signal that they're the stronger leader? Which one's going to give the signal of what life is going to be like if they are elected. Are we going to be a a country that wears a mask or are we going to be a country that tries to get back to the way we were before all this? That symbolism is going to be exceedingly powerful. And you know what else is going to happen? People are going to get fucking tired of wearing a goddamn mask. It is a pain in the ass. And when they, you know, going along for months at a time and they don't know anyone who has died, and in most of the country they're not going to know anyone who has died from this, they're going to start to think this is bullshit. And so the mask, I believe, I believe that the opinion on the mask is going to change. But Biden is still going to be handcuffed, almost literally, by being forced to wear this mask. That's going to be a problem for him, as are his gaffes. His gaffes, well, look, against the normal candidate, they would be huge. Against Trump, I think most people are willing to go, you know what? Who cares? It's not that big of a deal. I mean, here's one that's a doozy. I mean, this is this... I mean, I don't I've defended Joe Biden on this issue of his alleged dementia because he he is always a uh, battle with stuttering. And he has so he has a, a legitimate speech impediment. And look, he's old. So I, I give, cut him some slack on that. But this gaffe right here where you don't even know <laughs> who you're running against. And I, I look, I've made lots of verbal gaffes when you're talking without a uh, a script, as I do on this podcast, uh, for over an hour. Oftentimes, uh, you're going to say some dumb things. You're going to say some things that, that you didn't even realize you said. But this one, even if, if you understand those circumstances, is, is still a doozy. This was Joe Biden a few days ago on uh, why people should elect him. I'm prepared to say that I have a record of over 40 years and that I'm going to beat Joe Biden. Come on, really? It just flat out ridiculous. Oh, come on, I mean, I'm going to. What is it? What did he say? I'm prepared to say that I have a record of over forty years, and that I'm going to beat Joe Biden. <laughs> oh my God! You cannot be serious. The worst part about that is how emphatically he says Joe Biden. This is not you know, consistent with a slip of the tongue. He didn't immediately uh, realize his mistake uh, that he actually meant Donald Trump. He said he was going to beat Joe Biden. Again, does it matter to people, especially when you're running against Trump and uh, and you're in the middle of a pandemic? No, not really. But it is an indicator of potentially worse things to come. That's why I mention it. Now, there is another uh, gaffe. I don't even know what, if you would call it a gaffe, because frankly, I think it was premeditated that is far more impactful it could be the most important thing that has happened in this campaign so far depending on on how the dominoes fall from here but biden did an interview and it's just amazing to me that he even did this interview to begin with this was an interview with a black talk show host by the name of Charlemagne Charlemaine de god Charlemagne de god Charlemagne to God, who's apparently a nut job. This is essentially the equivalent of Donald Trump doing interviews with Alex Jones, which is what he did during the 2016 election. Uh, so this is the world we now live in where, you know, major presidential candidates, nominees or presumptive nominees of parties are now forced to do interviews with complete nut jobs on the absolute total fringe of their base. One on one interview. Now, it was, you know, via Skype or Zoom or whatever because of the virus. But uh, at the end of this interview, and I think it's important that this comes at the end. This is important because the way I interpret what happened here is that Charlemagne to God is told and you're not going to hear this in this part of the clip. He's told that their time is up, that Biden has to go. All right. So he's wrapping things up. Biden knows he has to go because he's hearing that. I mean, literally in the interview, you can hear the 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 consultant or whoever it is that's advising Joe Biden saying, look, we have to wrap this up. Uh, The candidate has other places to go. And so they know they both know they're wrapping this up. And that, to me, is critical for the context of what Biden ends up saying here, because when you know you're wrapping up, this sounds to me almost like it was a planned comment from Biden. Like this is how he planned to end the interview. Uh, you can decide for yourself. But here's what happened at the very end of that interview with uh, Charlemagne God. Listen, you got to come see us when you come to New York, VP Biden. I a, will. It's a long way until November. We got more questions. You got more okay. questions. But I tell you, if you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, and you ain't black what? What? Really? Wow. I mean, you ain't black. And again, I can I, I, I could be wrong about this, but that felt and I'm pretty expert at being able to having been in a lot of these interviews in all sorts of different mediums and, I, you know, on both ends of interviews. I know what sounds like something was premeditated and was not. That sounds to me like it was premeditated. If you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, and you ain't black. You ain't black. So therefore, uh, if you're someone who does not understand, inherently, without even thinking about it, that I'm the better candidate than Trump, then you are not a true black person. You are not a true black person. It's just flat out ridiculous. Uh, Not to mention racist. I mean, that is racist. That is inherently racist. And if Trump said it, and Trump has said things that are similar uh, in, the, in the opposite direction, like, for instance, uh, there's my African-American over there, uh, uh, you know, he would get crushed over that. Now, Tr- now Biden did get criticized by uh, a lot of people, including by a lot of black people here. And the Trump team jumped all over this. And this is a smart move. This is a smart move because Trump understands, or at least someone close to him understands, that there is a massive difference in the Electoral College between the Democrat candidate getting, let's say, 95 percent of an energized black vote and getting, let's say, even 85 percent of an unenergized black vote. Those are two massively different scenarios. If, if you are a Democrat running and you're getting 95 percent of an energized black vote, then Pennsylvania and Michigan are basically deadlock cinches. You cannot lose them. I mean, in theory, you could, but it would be very, very difficult to lose Pennsylvania or Michigan. And those are two very key states that Trump won in 2016. And part of why Trump won them in 2016 was the black vote was not that energized for Hillary Clinton. But Trump also knows that there are enough African-Americans who are, let's say, anti-establishment or contrarian to where if he is willing to appeal to them, he can get their vote. They are gettable. And for him to use this was a smart thing because he's essentially using this as, hey, you know, he's, he's targeting the 15, 20 percent of African-Americans that might be open-minded. He's saying, look, your guy is taking your vote for granted. He believes that you are obligated to vote for him because of the color of your skin. And that's racist. Uh, that's going to be effective, not with a huge portion of people, but with enough to potentially matter in the places where it matters, specifically Pennsylvania and Michigan, specifically Philadelphia and Detroit. And so this was a major blunder by Biden from an election standpoint. But the even more significant element of this, and this is the part that scares me, because I'm someone who still would like to support Joe Biden. Not that my support means a hill of beans. uh, But, you know, I would like to have a rooting interest in this election. I don't want to hate both candidates. I really don't. And the only way for me to feel really comfortable that I can see in, in, in supporting Joe Biden or rooting for Joe Biden is if he picks Amy Klobuchar as his vice presidential nominee. And as fate would have it, it was only the day before this interview that one of the major news stories was Amy Klobuchar is one of a handful of female candidates. So it's obviously going to be a female. One of a handful of female candidates who is being vetted to be Joe Biden's vice presidential nominee now biden klobuchar i could support i i, I trust amy klobuchar she seems you know, she's left she's way more liberal than i am but she seems like a decent enough person she seems to get it both she and biden were good friends with john mccain so they at least remember what the old republican party was about uh they, they seem less or she seems uh less hyper partisan she doesn't seem insane and let's face it, whoever Biden picks as his VP, it's going to be a massive decision because not only could he die at any moment, he's unlikely to run for a second term. And whoever he picks as vice president, vice presidential nominee is going to have a massive head start on the 2024 nomination and presidency should Biden decide not to run for reelection. So this is a massive decision. And so Biden, Klobuchar, I could support Biden and a bunch of other people, uh, I would have a much more difficult time doing. And it feels like to me that the the you ain't black thing, combined with a couple of things that are happening uh, you know, in, uh, around the country with regard to uh, race relations and some police situations that are that are reigniting racial tensions. It feels to me like Biden's going to be forced to pick an African-American woman or at least a, a woman of color. That, that, that feels to me like where we're headed with this. Now, you know he's not going to make this choice probably for another couple of months. The circumstances could change. But if he were to pick right now, I would be kind of shocked if he picked Klobuchar because I feel like he's going to feel pressured into making sure he's not looking like he's taking the black vote for granted and he's going to throw them a bone. He's going to say, OK, I hear you. Uh, I'm not only just going to go with a female, which is... <laughs> and currently inherently sexist in a rational world that he's already decided it's going to be a female. But I'm going to go with a female person of color, which, of course, inherently is racist uh, and inherently diminishes the, the selection because you're basically saying, yep, I chose you because you don't have a penis and because of the color of your skin. That's essentially what he's going to be saying. By, by by dictating that it's going to be a female, and then assuming he goes in this direction because of this backlash over the you ain't black situation, he will have diminished the significance of all of this. But from a political standpoint, uh, I think it could be devastating because I think that let's say, and I'm actually thinking Kamala Harris would be one of the better choices of the women of color. And I'm no Kamala Harris fan at all, but if, if I had to choose, if you had to choose, you know, Zig, pick, pick a woman of color that Biden has to have as a VP. I, I might have to go with Kamala Harris because she's at least somewhat smart. She used to be a prosecutor. Uh, you know, she doesn't seem completely insane, although she's pretty nutty. Uh, and she's from California, which inherently makes her nutty. Uh, I mean, and she's got all sorts of other problems. So I don't want to even defend Kamala Harris. But if, if, from, elect- from an election standpoint, uh, you know, let's just pretend it would be her. Uh, That's a problem. That's that's going to cause a problem. That's going to cause a problem in in several key areas. uh, And it will change the narrative of his campaign. And and so who knows for sure how this is going to turn out. But if it's not Klobuchar, I I think the uh, you ain't black comment. Uh, might have been the death knell for the Amy Klobuchar candidacy because she's white. She's from Minnesota. Black people don't know her. She has no support among black people. It will be seen as two, you know, lily white people, uh, not enough diversity as if her being a woman isn't diverse enough. And so that's where I see this heading. And that's going to be, again, another potential problem for Biden. That being said, Biden, and I've been saying this for weeks. If the election were today, Biden would absolutely win, and he might win in a landslide. I mean, just today, there's a Rasmussen poll out, and Rasmussen is by far the most pro-Trump poll there is. Rasmussen polling actually blocked me on Twitter. How hilarious is this? Rasmussen polling actually blocked me on Twitter because I had the audacity to say that uh, something to the effect that uh, they are very pro-Trump polling institute, which, of course, they are. I mean, it's laughable. They are always providing the most favorable polling data for Trump imaginable, especially with regard to his approval rating. Well, today I was stunned to see that the most recent Rasmussen poll of Trump's approval shows him with a negative approval rating of 15 points. Negative approval of 15 points on Rasmussen. That is shocking. And that is incredibly ominous for the Trump campaign. And it's not an outlier. Politico has a poll out, a massive poll, almost 2,000 respondents, where Trump is negative 17 in approval rating. His overall approval rating is negative 11. Two months ago, almost exactly two months ago, in the middle of the pandemic, it was minus 2 if you you averaged all the polls. Now, if you average all the polls, it's minus 11. His disapproval rating is up to an average of 54.5 this, this percent. is These are catastrophic numbers for a, a president seeking re-election. And so I reiterate that if the election were today, he would lose and he would probably lose soundly. But I continue to believe there's still a path for him to be re-elected if the virus gets under control stays under control, there's signs of an economic revival, and Democrats overplay their hands, all of which I see as theoretically possible. If that scenario occurs, I still believe Donald Trump can be reelected. Not by much. It'll be by the skin of his teeth, but it can still happen. That being said, I'm going to maintain the current chances of him being reelected at 30%. Uh, unchanged from last week please no wagering and as always keep your social distance that'll do it for this edition of the individual one podcast please remember to subscribe rate review and share it via social media follow us on twitter at individual the number one pod that's at individual the number one pod that's let's do it one more time at individual one pod until next week my name is john Ziegler. thanks for listening this is the global story network